It's the Growing for Market podcast. The one thing that I always share with people, particularly people that are bootstrapping, like starting a business on their own money, which most of us in farming are, we're putting up our own money to make it work. And what I've did with Two Hives and I'm continuing to do with the second business that I'm launching is really focusing on like this idea of the MVP, the minimal viable product. So like, for example, when I wanted to start doing Hive tours, I didn't yet have a proven concept. And so I didn't spend any money on bee suit until I booked a first tour. And then I frantically drove two hours north and bought a bunch of bee suits just enough to, to fit that tour, right? So this notion that like, as much as you can test out a new idea, a new product, whether it's like a service, test it out as much as you can and only do the bare minimum to make sure it's proven before you invest a lot of money. Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Katie Kula, your host and a writer for Growing for Market magazine, for 32 years, the magazine for vegetable and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. In a few minutes, we'll take a break from the interview and talk about farm tools with Connor of NeverSync Farm. We will be chatting about new tools, old tools, how they can benefit your farm, and tips to use them successfully. NeverSync Farm makes this podcast happen with their generous support so it can come to you for free. And we think there's no better sponsor for a podcast by farmers for farmers than NeverSync Farm where the tools are designed and made by farmers. So check them out at neversyncktools.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Growing for Market magazine podcast. I'm Katie Kula, one of your podcast co-hosts, and my guest today is Tara Chapman of Two Hives Honey in Texas. Two Hives Honey sells raw honey direct to consumers through its online store and also a monthly subscription program. They also offer multiple education opportunities through on-site honey tasting, tours, and beekeeping classes. In Tara's words, what started as a solopreneur running hive tours for meetup groups on two neighborhood hives has evolved into a socially conscious business that aims to educate our community support other local businesses, and of course, offer you the best damn honey Texas bees can make. I'm excited to talk with Tara today about her journey to farming, which like many people, wasn't super straightforward. She also has a lot of insight to share with our listeners on how she built a business out of honey and beekeeping through a combination of innovative marketing techniques and agritourism. So Tara, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, good. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? So first of all, you started your career in a very, very different sector than agriculture and then changed course. In fact, you worked for a decade at the Central Intelligence Agency, which most of us just call the CIA, which seems about as far from beekeeping as I can imagine. Can you tell us a bit about your earlier experiences and how you ended up making the switch to starting a honey business? Yeah. And those of us in the business just call it the agency. (laughs) The agency. Okay. 
<laughs> the agency. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked 10 years total for the government in various capacities. But yeah, I did that right out of college. It was super exciting, though. When that's your first job out of college and you have no basis for comparison, I wonder if I like really appreciated it and valued it for what it was, you know? But so yeah, about 10 years ago, I found myself, I was splitting my time between DC, Austin, Texas, and Afghanistan. How's that for three different wardrobes? And was looking for something different. I didn't know what I wanted to do, honestly, but was done with that work. We can go into that if you're interested. I was done with that work and had taken a beekeeping class. Like, do you remember Groupon? you know, the like sites you could, I guess it still exists. There was a beekeeping class on Groupon and I thought that is the weirdest thing I've ever, like that's a thing that you can like do that thing and signed up with a friend, a brand new friend I just met. She actually ended up being an employee of mine for many years. And we took this beekeeping class and I fell in love with it. I was totally fascinated. Started a hive, a backyard hive with another friend and we built our own hives. I graduated from Duke University. So a first generation college graduate. So like a good feat for a first gen and building that hive. I think that was the most proud I've ever been of myself to include like graduating from college. Just like this notion of like taking this raw material and building something and like it existing and function and being functional. It just was an amazing feeling. And I just was obsessed with the bees. I talked about them nonstop. And I actually was studying to go to grad school because, you know, what do you do when you don't know what you want to be when you grow up? You just like go to law school or take the GRE, right? So I was studying for that. And then the night before I was to take the test, I read about this grant program that closed overnight that night. And I'd had this unique idea for a honey company that I thought we could harvest different honeys in different neighborhoods and like use that to market them. And so instead of going and taking the test, I stayed up all night and wrote this grant application, didn't take the test and then won the grant. Thank goodness. And here we are. So it's like kind of the short end of how we got here. Yeah. Wow. So Okay, so that sounds like in some ways a spontaneous decision, <laughs> but maybe also things working up to it, that 24-hour grant application. So did you continue doing more education about the business and logistical side of Honey at that point? Like what kind of resources were you using to help make get that off the ground? Yeah, so I won this money. I won $8,000 and I that was in the fall. And so you would normally start new hives in the spring. And so I was able to use that money to purchase 20 hives and bees and boxes and such for the next spring. And then use the winter time to kind of plan out what I was going to do and what it was going to look like. And then I had started doing a couple of classes here and there. I would teach at like a local sustainability nonprofit center. And I was doing a little bit of things here and there, but it wasn't really making me any real money. And there was a pitch competition for new businesses in the area of culinary and food. And I was like, I'll, I'll just go pitch something. So I pitched this notion that I could charge people who wanted to be beekeepers to let me put two hives in their backyard and it would be kind of like a rent to own. So they would pay a monthly fee. I would own the hives and everything in them. So that would give me a place to put hives. Two, it would allow me to get paid for the bees that were going to produce the honey that I needed to sell, but they wouldn't make the honey for at least another year, right? So it would, it would give me revenue there. 
And three, allowed me to start to develop networks and relationships and get recurring revenue, which is recurring revenue is like the gold star of any business. And so I pitched this idea. It's a great story, actually. I pitched this idea. You got 60 seconds to pitch. There were 32 people that pitched. Every single business there was an app and not me. Like I was the only not app in the whole room. So this was like 10 years ago. This is right when apps were becoming like a big thing, right? I was the only app and I was so embarrassed and I didn't want to get up there. And I texted my friend and he was like, you have to get up there, Tara, you're there. I got up there. I I had a little frame of bees, a little observation hive. And I like unveiled the bees with this like little cloth. I pitched six companies got into the little mini incubator. So for the whole weekend, everyone had to like pair up and like help you build and launch this business and get it off the ground. But after we, the six businesses got in, everyone in the room had to decide whose team they were going to work on. So you kind of ran around and tried to win people to come work for you. And nobody wanted to be on my team. Really? I would have wanted to be on your team. It still makes me so like, it breaks my heart still to think about it. I still get so sad for a little like Tara from 10 years ago. And so this woman had to go around and she had to be like, she had to like find people and be like, you have to work with Tara. And then I won that pitch. Yes. And I was so proud of myself that nobody wanted to be on my team. I was the only one that wasn't an app and nobody wanted to be on my team when I won that. So that's how I launched the business. I had all these like mentors and like I walked out of there with like a sort of business plan and then started offering that service. That's amazing. I think you need to make a movie script out of that story. <laughs> I, so when I hear that you're the only one who's not an app, I'm like, that I, I can imagine how intimidating that was, but I think, wow, you just stood out from the crowd just by being there, right? Which in those kinds of things is the hard part. It was a good lesson of like, from a farmer's perspective. <laughs> yeah, from a farmer's perspective. But to me, it's like, wow, that's such a unique, different way to think about starting a business compared to like, oh, an app. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like today it would be the opposite. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like people are so much more interested and in tune. Like everybody wants to be like a sort of Instagram farmer. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I feel like today it might be the opposite, but yeah, 10 years ago, nobody was like really interested in my little bee business. And I know that I am, there was two businesses that were actually truly launched out of there and I'm the only one that still exists. So what an accomplishment. So anyway, a good lesson in like getting up there and just shooting your shot, right? It's giving it a go. Definitely. Congratulations on being the sustained business. Clearly you had some different level of investment in it too. I think that is a really different thing about like you were talking about that experience of building bee boxes after being in college and then maybe working more in a non-hands-on setting. That accomplishment feeling, I remember that too when I first got out of college and my first job out of college was actually working in a large kitchen. And so I was working with my body all day and just was like, wow, look at this food I made. But I think when you do that work, there's a different level of investment sometimes even than something that could just disappear, you know, if you close a screen because there's real things tangibility. I don't know if tangibility is a word, but it feels like it should be tangible things is is something that just so many people don't get to do, don't have the experience with like going home with the other day and having something tangible 
I'm launching a second business actually. Oh, it's a whole other story. But it's a CPG company. And again, it's just because I love creating things, like particularly things that, you know, consumables, like things that we can enjoy with our senses. I'm not into like stuff, but like tangible things that we can enjoy, you know, with our family and friends and have a whole experience around food and drink. And I just love, you know, when I'm launching the second business, everyone, everyone is like, you know, CPG. CPG is consumer packaged goods for those that are listening and don't know. Uh, but CPG, everyone, you know, CPG is really hard and it is really hard. But man, the ability to produce something, to share it and to share that with someone that's then going to get to, again, use all of their senses to like experience it and love it or maybe not. But like the, the possibility that they will and that you created that. I actually did my first meeting with a buyer today on this product and I came home and I was like, God, it's just so amazing to like create something and then have someone to get to enjoy it. You know, it's like so wonderful. And that's what you get when you work in farming and ag of all sorts is there's tangibility to it. Yeah. You can hold it. People can eat it. Yeah. So, okay. So once you started the business and you started, is that the model you started with is having the two hives in people's backyards? And you had, you said you had 20 to start with. Is that, what was that expansion? Like, were you able to get the information, like I've scaled things, right? Like growing vegetables in a garden is different than growing vegetables in a whole field. So what was that like for you to scale up beekeeping? Yeah. So the 20 hives were like my own, like those were the hives that were owned by two hives that we had at different sites that were theoretically going to hopefully produce honey in again, a year's time from the time that they were started. And so I recognized that I wasn't going to have honey in any of these new hives for so long. I had to have other ways to make money. So this idea that someone could come to me and wanted to be a backyard beekeeper, but was a little bit nervous, I could teach them along the way. They would pay that monthly fee, but I would own any honey that came out of the hives for the first 18 months. And then the idea was that after 18 months, they would have learned all of the lessons and been these phenomenal beekeepers and then the hives would kind of convert to them so that they paid for the hives and the boxes and it was like they were paying me this fee to do lessons and classes with them but then I got to harvest the honey so that was one of the ways that I had revenue before I actually had honey you know I had a honey company but no honey then the second thing was I started doing hive tours, which is this, you mentioned agritourism in the introduction, and it's really important to us. But this, I just found that everyone, all of my family and friends that would come into town, they just wanted to go see the bees. And I thought, I should charge for that. I'm very opportunistic in that way. <laughs> I remember at one point, an employee was like, Tara, we should really give your mom a discount. And I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> very big into charging for your work. <laughs> so we now have, it's a joke, we call it the mom discount. So I started cold calling meetup groups, right? I would find meetup groups that had like an outdoor slant that were hikers or interested in, I don't know, birding or whatever. And I would email them and say, I've got a great opportunity and experience for your group. And so I, I, that's how I started it. I started just like booking them one by one and then slowly actually got software up on my website that people, you know, because for the longest time, Someone would buy the experience and then I had to email them and say, how's Tuesday at five? How wins? And like we were, I was manually scheduling all of these things and I would load up my car with all of my stuff, 
drive across town to a farm. You know, today you go on Two Hives website, there's tours for months out. You know, you pick the date you want, it auto emails you, everything's set up. Like I don't touch any of that. But that's how everything has to start is you're just like hustle, 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 right? And you do it all at the, at the beginning. And so that allowed me to start to build my business. I had those, you know, the margins on agritourism can be huge. And they're not activities that are often reliant on the weather. Hive tours are in a sense that like, I can't get into a hive if it's raining, but a a mistimed rain is not going to ruin the whole season of hive tours like it can for honey. And so it allowed me to have more reliable income. And then also agritourism builds in this audience that's going to then turn around and buy your honey. That exit through the gift shop phenomenon is very real and very powerful. And now let's talk farm tools with Connor of Never Sink Farm, our collaborator on this podcast. Hey, Connor. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about paper pot transplanting. This is something I've never actually used on my farm, and I'm so interested in learning more. How can a person, a farmer using this, control the spacing both in the row and what would you recommend between rows when using this transplanting mechanism? The standard paper pot come in in three different, you know, it's a chain of paper pots, for anyone who doesn't know. And each pot has paper in between them in that chain. And that chain can be different lengths. So it's numbered in centimeters, but in English, it's going to be uh, two inches, four inches, or six inches. And they just came out with another one, which is... 30 centimeters, so that's going to be uh, 12 inches. It's a pretty distant one, but that requires extra inserts on your transplanter to keep them all straight up. So I'll ignore that one for now because I've never really used it, the 12 inch. And an important note is, is as you get farther spacing on a paper pot, the less reliable the planting is. And that's why for the subversive, we work very hard for just on the six inch to make sure it worked every single time. So those are your choices. But what you can do is you can seed every other pot. And so if you want to do eight inch spacing, then you would have a four inch paper pot and do every other pot. And you kind of have to know the design of how the paper pots are kind of put together in the chain so you know what every other one is. But once you know that, then you have other options, right? You have an 8-inch and then you have a 12-inch as well you, that you made yourself by doing the spacing. But for our farm, we always try to use as tight spacing as possible because I just like tight spacing, first of all, and I don't want to waste a bunch of paper pots, so I try to do them tight. But obviously, for something like lettuce heads, you, you, you have to have uh, we use eight inch spacing, so we'll double a four inch. But for something like onions or spinach or any of the herbs, uh, cilantro, dill, then we'll use as tight as we can and just do it that way. And usually three rows per for something like herbs, six rows for spinach, and then three rows for lettuce heads or beets with paper pots, and three rows for onions. I'd rather have a tighter, more dense row itself for something like onions or anything else, and then loosen up the beds themselves and not have too many rows so that we can cultivate easily and 
and all of that just makes it nicer. But, you know, and I think I think what's true with most people who use paper pots is you just start experimenting with different spacing because now suddenly you're, you're kind of, you know, locked into certain spacings with them and it's important not to waste any and, and all of that's very different now. Suddenly everything's attached to each other. And so we've, we've changed them so much, you know, we've changed how we do it. But I wouldn't say there's a wrong way because it so much depends on your farm. I don't know if you find this as well, but as my soil gets better or something, I can plant more densely. And early on, if I, if I planted looser, then things just did better. I felt like the soil didn't support as densely planted stuff. And once I realized that, things, things worked out a lot better. You know, I, I would think the soil is really good, but it wasn't. And uh, it would just cause problems to try to plant too much into it. So I would say that's one of the major reasons that we changed is when, when things end up small, it's it's not just because of the tightness, but because the soil just will not support that density. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So it sounds like it's a pretty flexible system in terms of there's a lot of different ways to affect the spacing. As with all things in farming, right? The answer is experiment, yeah. see what works for you, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's one of the main takeaways from the magazine and the podcast. Like, here's some words of wisdom from farmers. Now go forth and try it out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Connor. Talk to you again. Absolutely. Bye. And now back to the show. Yeah, so and you had, were doing the hive tours, and then you had the backyard hive business. So when you were doing the backyard hive business, are they taking classes from you and one site, and they're doing all the work, and you come and get the honey? You weren't maintaining all those hives, or how is that working? Yeah, I maintain them. Okay, at, in that first bit. In that first 18 months, because that was critical to make sure that the hives were getting honey. You know, they were producing honey. And so I would maintain them. And then they had very specific touch points. So they would have group classes together so many times per year. And then we would have private lessons. And so this whole program was what I developed in that pitch competition. Like I left that weekend with this is what it's going to look like where you're going to sign up, you're going to pay this much money, and this is what you're going to get. Like I had a little brochure that I left that weekend with and started signing people up. And it was a very popular program. I only did it for a couple, three or four years. It was great when I just needed that revenue and was trying to kickstart everything else, but it wasn't something that was actually going to be scalable. So it became almost like burdensome <laughs> at one at that point. Yeah, that's a lot of just driving around, I would think. Two hives here, two hives there. For two hives, right. Right. Now, we don't even waste our time unless I can put at least eight or 10, ideally closer to 15 or 20. So, but you learn all those lessons, right? I mean, you know, like when you first start something, you don't know what you don't know. And it's hard enough to not know what you, it, anyway, you just learn so much. And so I learned so much along the way. And like, I thought, oh, every minute that I'm driving, I'm actually not making money. So I have to be more efficient here. So when you started doing the tourism piece, the bee tourism, where were you taking them to see? Was that, did you have sites that already had more hives on them or were you taking them to people's backyards? 
Yeah. So when I first started, so I never even had hives in my own backyard. I didn't have the space for them, but my neighbor across the street did. And he is from South Sudan and is from a place where, you know, community is really strong and we kind of all contribute and we all take kind of equally. And so he was so giving about he wanted the bees and he didn't, wasn't a beekeeper. And so he let me put six hives in his backyard and then they would pollinate his little garden. And then he would let me run hive tours. So when those early days, when those meetup groups were coming to visit me, we would start on my back porch with a cooler of beer (laughs) and we would just sit and have a chat about bees. And then we would like walk across the street with our bee suits and put on our suits. It was very, very like kind of low grade. And then I upgraded at some point later to a farm and I had 10 or so hives at this farm. So we would do the tours there, which was definitely a step up, but there was no bathroom on site. So that was always tricky. And then we upgraded again to a cidery, which had like a tap room and they had bathrooms. And that was a real upgrade because you would get a glass of cider with your tour. And that was kind of a win-win for both us and the cidery. And then in 2020, we actually upgraded again and we now own our own land just east of Austin called the Honey Ranch. And I live in the front and then at the back is we have three apiaries here and then we've got a beautiful barn space so people can now we've got all we've got bathrooms we have drinks but you can show up you do the hive tour and then we have that ever critical exit through the gift shop piece which is really important which like doubles the amount that we can bring in on a tour some days because people just love when they learn about you and what you do they're invested in you and they want to they want to spend money they want to spend money I mean, you want them to spend money. So it's great. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I've always felt when I'm selling these like really high quality agricultural products, I just feel so good about selling them. It's like, yeah, on one hand, I'm going to make an income off of this, but I also just genuinely feel enthusiastic about this product and how it is in the world and how it's going to taste good to you and benefit your family. It's always a win-win in that case. It feels easy to sell good good farm products. <laughs> Absolutely. And people well, like thankfully live in a place in a, in a time where at least in Austin, like people are very excited about getting to learn more about, you know, people are probably as interested as they've ever been on some level in terms of like ag. And I mean, we always have, we have a long ways to go, but so many people are still interested in that. And I've got an interesting subject matter with bees. And so it's so exciting to get to share these things with people. For sure. And I want to backtrack a little to what you were saying about the bathrooms. Like you just glossed over that. But since so much of your business is based in agritourism, and I know that a lot of farms have found that hosting events or having some kind of on-site store helps just boost their profitability over, say, just going to markets or doing a CSA. So I think that's something a lot of farms aspire to. And I know our farm over the years has hosted a lot of events. I wrote an article about it for the magazine last year. And there are a few things that you always need to keep in mind if you're going to have people out to a space, right? And one of those is the bathrooms. Parking is another one, right? What are some of the others that you had to think about? Like when you were searching for your dream property or setting it up, what were all the pieces of the puzzle you wanted to have in place? Yeah, the parking is a big one. We still, we have some events where we have my husband acts as like a stand-in sort of valet. He goes out there on parking duty with my like 18-month-old in tow. You know, another thing that I have to think about is that 
people want the farm experience, but they don't really want the real farm experience. Yeah. And like our standards are very different than someone coming from the city and have one expectation. And so we've put a lot of thought into like how to balance the fact that this is a working farm. And so, you know, there are snakes and there are scorpions and we don't have sidewalks. My Probably my most frustrating Google review ever was that someone wrote, we have, we have so many wonderful five-star reviews and we had one person that gave us a four-star review and she took off a star because we'd had heavy, heavy, heavy rains. This is three years ago, heavy rains. And she complained about having to walk through some puddles to get back to the bees. And I just, it took all of my strength and energy to not like unleash on this woman and this Google review that you're coming to a working farm and we do a really good job of, we've got a beautiful barn. It's air conditioned. It's not like, central air conditioning, but we have splits in every room. I think it's a beautiful barn space, you know, but at the end of the day, this is still like that barn gets after you have your bridal shower in it tomorrow, it's like, we're going to be packing honey. And so it flips a lot. And so thinking about that balance between people want this elegant, elevated experience, but it's also a farm. So trying to figure out the balance between those things, I think is really tricky. And I'm constantly questioning myself and finding myself, you know, reminding people when we're out, apologizing, like, oh, the, you know, we probably should trim the grass. I'm sorry, but, you know, we don't have a landscaping crew. Like, it rained for the last two weeks, so we haven't been able to cut the grass. And just hoping that people are in the right space to accept us for what we are and that we kind of walk the line between the two. You know, we're not a wedding venue. Right. But we're definitely more elevated than, like, your typical farm. That's It's tough. Yeah, the sidewalk one is a big one. We've always had to warn people when we have events that because we learned early on that this is something that surprises people, they will be walking on uneven ground. Yeah, they'll wear high heels or flip flops or whatever. Yeah, right. Wear sneakers. And also we would often we learned early on to have chairs available just at any event, just nearby, you know, because not everybody can stand for long periods of time. It's very different having people out to a farm, for sure. You know, you you look at your farm really differently when you start inviting a lot of people on. It is. Oh, man, I just thought of one that I'm constantly having to like, is the, we have a pasture full of pollinator friendly plants. And so at some times of the year, it's beautiful and it's full of color But other times of the year, you know, when they're starting to go to seed, it's not the prettiest thing, but we can't mow it yet, right? You don't want to mow until it goes completely to seed. And so having to explain that this unkept feel and look is by design because at first, at the end of the day, our bees are the most important and this is like feeding our bees. And so having to explain that I've had, it's kind of a bummer because I've had several corporate entities that are very excited about coming out here And I'll be meeting with like a program manager or something. And then they send someone that's not been in our conversations and they come out and they've had made comments about, well, you're going to mow that before we come out, right? And I have to say no. And then I explain and I had one woman say something like, these people aren't from Texas. They won't understand. And I said, well, they will because we'll explain it to them. And that's the whole reason that you want to come out here, right? Is that you're coming out here to learn about bees and why this is important So they will know. You just have to let us explain to them. And people, they come here with open hearts and minds. Anyway, she didn't book because we wouldn't mow the field. (laughs) Shoot. Well, you know, it's their loss in that case, really. Yeah, but that's something else, you know, that like we have to explain all the time. Definitely. 
So you have a bunch of different pieces of your business going on all the time. I'm curious, do you have an average looking day? (laughs) I mean, because some days you're hosting people, some days you're actually out working with the hives, or is there a season to those different pieces of the work for you? They're definitely, it's super seasonality. Yeah. It's really tough. I mean, we do far too much. We're really trying to like narrow our focus in. The trap that we get into is that we just have a hard time saying no. I really wish I was better at it. I don't mean that as like a, I really truly mean like I really, it's, it's a weakness of mine and I need to get better at it. But yeah, there's definitely a seasonality. So in the spring, Saturdays out here are bananas, but super fun because on any given Saturday, we might have our beekeeping apprentices. We've got an intensive six Saturday beekeeping program. So we've got 20 apprentices out here, two hive tours with 12 people on each one. And we might have a private hive tour. So when we might have, you know, 80 to hundred people in and out of here on any given day, all getting into hives and like learning about bees. And so that's really fun. So that's all spring um, Saturdays are very, and then fall as well. They're really, really busy. And then during the week, we reserve our bee work for during the week. So during the week, usually one day a week, I'm in bees. I try to only be in bees one day every other week. Cause honestly, if I'm in bees, we're not, you know, we're losing money kind of thing. I've got a great beekeeping team, but I try to get in fairly regularly. Yeah. And then just, you know, it's like at some point you just don't get to do the fun stuff anymore. You know, my team gets to do most of the fun things. I don't teach many of the intro classes anymore, but if you want to grow, then that just means that at some point you're kind of delegated to the things that are probably not what brought you into the field in the first place. Like, marketing and social media (laughs) and writing newsletters. (laughs) And so I do a lot of that. And uh, yeah, and then holidays are really busy around here. We do a big holiday bazaar every year that's very fun. We do a bunch of honey, like holiday honey tastings. And so Saturdays, outside of summer, Saturdays are pretty hot out here. Yeah, pretty happening. Yeah. So can you walk us through one of these kinds of events somebody might come out for? Like what would be a, like a honey tasting event? How would that go versus a hive tour? Yeah. So those are kind of our two signature experiences. We do a lot of bespoke things in the middle. We do honey harvest parties as well, but our two signature experiences are we offer these hive tours, which you can buy a ticket on a public tour on the weekend. So like you and a friend could come. And then we also do private tours. So people can book out six, eight, 10, 20 people, whatever on a tour. And that is, we call that our be a beekeeper for a day experience. And so, you know, we have a sit and they learn a little bit about honeybee biology. They get to touch and feel some things with their hands. And then we put on suits and then they get to go and get into a beehive. And then it just kind of becomes like, a where's Waldo of all of the things that you just learned about the queen bee, the worker bee, the drone bee, the honey, the nectar, the pollen, and a beekeeper kind of leading you through everything that you're seeing. It's really cool for people to get to hold frames of bees and be up close to thousands of bees. So that's our hive tour experience. And then we have these honey sensory classes, which are really fun. And they're so much more than just the honey and cheese tasting Though we do pair usually with cheese and the kind of other accoutrements, but like we've done everything from like honey and whiskey tasting, honey and chocolate. We do all sorts of things, but it's an opportunity to get to try a rainbow of colors, flavors, and textures of different honeys and learn about 
how we get these different types of honey, both without beekeeper humor intervention and ways that we can manipulate the honey to kind of change its flavor and consistency. And so with each course of honey, people get to learn a little bit more about the nuances of honey and how we get all of these, you know, the grocery store tells you it's a commodity, but it is far from it. And so those are really fun. So we have those here at the ranch, both as private experiences, and then we do public ones as well. And like I say, we do a lot of themed ones. We did a themed one one year. We usually do a Valentine's Day one and the tickets are sold in groups of two. And then everything on the plate that's paired with it has some like story of love or kind of like fits in the theme. It, they're fun. They allow us to kind of like express our creativity in, in ways outside that we usually don't get to do when we're just working bees. Yeah, that sounds so fun and such a unique experience. The area where our farm is, is a wine growing and producing region in Oregon. And so there's a lot of wine tasting that happens here. And it's so fun to think about that same concept applied to other agricultural products. When we used to have people out for fall, end of the season, pumpkin patch type of events for our CSA members, we would always ha- choose a vegetable and have a or a fruit and have a tasting of it. So like we'd roast up 10 different potatoes or something or cut up 10 different kinds of apples or winter squash. And it's I just love that experience of highlighting those differences that if you were only sitting down with one kind of honey, for example, you wouldn't know that it tastes so different from this other kind of honey. I love it. That's an, I want to come. I'm going to fly to yeah. Texas just so I can taste yeah. honey. <laughs> what are the differences? Can you tell us a little bit of like what p- types of things you guys usually highlight? And I'm curious. So up here in Oregon, we have like a lot of blackberry honey and a lot of clover honey are the two. What kinds of things in Texas are, are you guys feeding on? Yeah. So you get these like single origin honeys, right? So like where you are, you get the blackberry honey, which means all of the nectar comes from blackberry bushes or the clover comes from clover flowers, of course. But you can get anything in the middle as well. So that's called a single origin or single floral, but you also can have a multi-floral. And then if you think about multi-florals, it's kind of an infinite combination. It's kind of like a recipe, right? You might have a little of blackberry and a little of this clover and a little bit of that clover. And so there's an infinite combo of like flavors and colors and textures that you can get. And different nectars provide these different attributes. So that's why blackberry honey would taste different than the clover. And that's before we even start intervening, right? Like beekeepers can also infuse honey. We don't do a ton of infusions, but we do some. We do usually one a month or so. But we can also kind of alter the flavor by adding things later. And so that's really fun to get to show people. And you know, it's really interesting. Like we have one honey from that we get from the Texas persimmon tree. So Texas has a native persimmon. I don't know if they're other places. I'm presuming they would be, but it's not like the orange persimmons that we get from Asia. There are these big purple fruits, almost black. And the honey is really dark, almost like motor oil in color. And it is a flavor that you would not expect from honey. And we found that we didn't know what to do with it because we were nervous. If, If you were coming in to buy honey and you went home with that, you might get home and be like, 
what was I just sold? Like the unexpected is not always good. And then we started doing these honey sensory classes where we would share this honey and we would tell the story of where it came from and the fruit and why it has this super viscous texture and why it never crystallizes and the flavor profile. And then we found that this honey that nobody really wanted before suddenly is a really prized honey because when you tell the story of something, people get really excited about it, right? Like you were saying, when y'all would roast up the potatoes and you could like tell the story of it and like show how you can prepare it. That's what gets people excited. They want to live in your world for a day. And so we sell a ton of that honey now. And I'm, we could probably sell any honey as long as we could tell the story of it. But some of the honeys that we get here in Texas that are really beautiful are mesquite honey. So mesquite trees, ranchers hate them. I understand why, <laughs> but they make this like amazing like bright neon kind of yellow color of honey which is really delicious and then we get a lot of bee balm honey you'll probably have bee balm horse mint up in your area do you have that blooming up in your area i would presume you do it's not a wild plant but people grow it in their gardens and like the, you're talking about monarda yes mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. yeah i have some in my garden i love it yeah it's a phenomenal plant for bees. And that makes a really delicious honey. The bee balm is having a big year this year. So we're going to get a lot of bee balm honey. It's really nice. One of our favorite cover crops to grow is phacelia. I don't know if that's one that people grow on as a cover crop in Texas. I don't know what that is. Is that the common name? The common name is bee friend. It is a common name. It, the, so the com the le, the scientific name is oh I don't know what this is <laughs> yeah you should look it up it's such a cool plant it's phacelia with a ph and then the common name is bee friend and it's this it's a great cover crop because it incorporates really easily but it has these beautiful flowers I don't know all the botanical language but they unfurl over a long period of time and they just they bloom forever and they just oh they're such a great Oh, a great food for pollinators. Maybe I'll have to send you some seed. See if that's a yeah, be friend. That's Texas friendly crop. Yeah. If nothing else, it'd be a great one to just add to some of your flower beds or whatnot. It's very pretty. Yeah, I'll come and check it out. So you also we've talked a lot about the agritourism, but you do sell the honey. So you have a gift shop, and so people buy it when they come on site. But you also do online sales and even a monthly subscription as well. Are those popular items or like which part of your business sort of feeds the other more or do they kind of hold hands like and work back and forth? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So the, the honey, we sell all that we produce every year. Some years we produce more than others. So the last two years have been really lean because we had this really horrific storm in February, 2021. And then the drought last year was just debilitating. And so the agritourism, that's why it's so important because that literally feeds us when the honey doesn't. This year is going to be a really good year, but you know, we just don't, we, that's our one crop and we only get two harvests a year and literally a single weather event can just ruin it. And so it's a very risky business to be in. That's why, you know, most honey companies, they're not beekeepers, they're honey packers, most all of them. Anyone that's not like a really tiny business, they're all honey packers and they just buy, you know, they buy honey from beekeepers all over the country, usually all over the world, Canada, Brazil, other parts of Mexico. And it's great because then when you don't have a crop in one area, you just go somewhere else. But we don't have that option because everything that we sell with our logo on it is our honey. And last year, we cut our wholesale program all together because we just could not afford to sell it wholesale 
retail or wholesale when we didn't have, you know, we just didn't have that much. So we're going to be kicking up our wholesale program yet again. But yeah, the honey is kind of, you know, that's what we're known, what draws people in. People get excited about honey, but the agritourism does a much better job of paying the bills. (laughs) Right. But of course there couldn't be agritourism without the bees. So I guess they kind of make a big circle. Absolutely. They go hand in hand. And like I say, now having our own space out here where people can, we, you know, sell so much more of our honey here than we really do. You know, we're in all seven Whole Foods in Austin and that's great, but we just sell so much more of our honey here than we do anywhere else. And so getting people here to do fun stuff, is just kind of a win-win all the way around. Yeah. I want to talk more about the marketing piece, but before we move on from the hives, I am curious from the more agricultural side, what kinds of challenges? So you have weather, which I imagine... I mean, in Texas, I think of Texas and I think big weather. So of <laughs> extreme yeah. weather. You said that the February of 21, that was, we actually had an ice storm the same time that you all did in Texas. So I was up here sympathizing with you guys. How did that affect the hives? I mean, what does that do? Yeah. So those temperatures are nothing that bees cannot deal with, but those temperatures are not typical for here. And so, you know, up north, they often wrap, they take different precautions. The hives that we put bees in are not as strong on the, what's it called, the R scale? Like basically the scale of like how insulated wood would be, right? Like they tend to nest in like trees where the tree trunks are really thick. And so anyway, they take different precautions, but also the timing of that storm so it was that we have temperatures we've never experienced, not in a hundred years or something crazy. And then the real big issue was that spring had already started here. And so to have those temperatures even a month prior wouldn't have been near as big of a deal. But by the time February 1st comes around, and in particular that year, we had a pretty warm winter, pollen is coming in. So queens stop laying in the winter because they cannot care for brood and keep the adult population clusters stay warm at the same time. They just can't, they can't stretch their resources because bees cannot survive those temperatures. They're like penguins. They have to huddle to stay warm. And so they stopped producing brood babies during that time to keep warm. So spring had sprung. Pollen had started coming in, which spurs our queen to start laying. So you had these hives that were packed wall to wall with brood because we already, spring was already here. And so you had two things happen. You had one, these really cold temperatures and they were stretching to try to keep their brood warm and cluster warm and they just couldn't do it. So had huge losses there. And then number two, all of the early spring plants had germinated. Everything had germinated and was already sprouting and Mm. all of that stuff died and it doesn't happen again for another year. And so they just had no food to eat. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it was really devastating. I also learned I was pregnant during that week. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of drama. Oh, no. The first day the power went out, I was like, something is off with me. And then I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. And yep. And I couldn't get a test for four days because there was no way to go. There was nowhere to go. There were no stores. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. That's a week to remember. Yeah. What Have you encountered any other challenges with the B part? Like, I know I hear and read a lot about colony collapse and the impact of pesticides on hives. Have you experienced anything like that? Or do you take precautions in terms of where you place your hives? 
Yeah, we do. It's tough because, you know, they'll go three miles plus one way. And so it's really challenging. Like there's no way they're like totally void of like being around any pesticides. But we just try to be really smart. Like I would not place my hives next to a large monoculture farm, for example. And we don't really have much of that here in central Texas anyway. But like California, for example, all those bees that are driven around between farms are just getting hit pretty hard on the pesticide front. So that's real tough. And then there is a particular mite called Varroa mite that is just the bane of beekeepers existence. And we are a treatment-free operation here. It doesn't mean we get to pretend they don't exist by any means, but we do our best to really stretch or flex our muscles on all the other parts of the integrated pest management pyramid to try to like keep them at bay. It's really tough, but because we do not participate in the migratory beekeeping, so we don't move our bees around for pollination services, we don't have to deal with a lot of these kinds of things at the level that those migratory beekeepers do. Mm, that makes sense. Right. And they also, I, my understanding is that also stresses the bees too, the moving. It does. Yeah. It's it's not natural. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's really not natural. But, you know, unfortunately, though there's people like me and you out there, still most all of our food is grown via monoculture and they have to have bees to pollinate it. There's like no way, or, there's no other way at this point in time to feed this country. And so it's an evil necessity, unfortunately. Yeah. We would not have almonds without those bees going down to California. That's right. Because California grows 80% of the world's almonds, which is so crazy. (laughs) And here on the West Coast, those bees are, the same bees that go to California are the ones that they use later in the year here in Oregon. So they're traveling all up and down the West Coast, some of those hives. It's incredible to think about that. They make this circle. Yeah, they'll go to Florida, then they'll go up to Maine, and they just like make this big loop all year. It's crazy. Yeah. So if you're not moving to different blooming fields, like around here, they'll move to a clover field and then a cherry orchard. How are you making sure that your bees have enough food year round? You said that you on your place have planted to try to have as much available. Is that also something you're thinking about in the placement? We're just really selective as to where we put the bees. So we don't have the farming situation here looks a lot different than it does up like in your way or in California. So we don't have a lot of that one single crop to be able to move around. Like we have lots of really small family farms, but they're pretty small. And so like literally I can draw a line down the center of the map and I won't put bees west of this fault line and I only will go east for production hives because they just, after much trial and error, I've learned kind of where naturally, because we can plan to support our bees, but honestly, you need far beyond what any one backyard is going to provide. So actually city bees do really well in parts of Austin because of all the backyard gardens and community gardens and like landscaping and whatnot. And then the further like one direction that you get outside of Austin, the climate becomes much harsher. The soil is really rocky and doesn't actually support a lot of just like naturally uh, nectar producing plants. But like east of Austin, it's very lush. It's very green. We get a lot more rain on this side. And it's like crazy how just one or two miles can like make the difference. So it's mostly just been a lot of trial and error and figuring out where's a better place for bees. And I have a pretty good sense of like what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that's awesome to have that level of knowledge about your local region in terms of the bees. Okay, let's circle back. Let's go to marketing because I do want to talk about this because obviously all these cool things you're doing sit on this 
really critical foundation of letting people know that you have these things, right? And getting them excited about both the opportunities to the educational opportunities, the tourism opportunities, and then also buying your honey. I observed on Instagram, which is where I first met you, that you have 23,000 followers, which is pretty great. And you've told me you have a good email following too. I'm curious what your particular approach has been to your farm communications. How have you used those different outlets? And are there things besides Instagram and your email that you've used? Like, do you use any more local print-based or like web ads on local papers or anything like that too, to get the word out? Yeah. So Instagram was really good to us for a long time, less so now. (laughs) Once the algorithms changed to so heavily favor reels, it's a very different platform than it was when I, you know, first started. And so we got to 20,000 followers probably in the first seven years. And I've just kind of hovered for the last three followers isn't everything, but it is something, but it just goes to show how like social media is a borrowed marketing resource. You don't own it. And it's always really important to know that. And so we were so reliant on Instagram only for years, but I could post something and we would immediately see sales spike. It was like pretty miraculous. And we did that through storytelling. Visual storytelling was like really, really effective for us to grow. And then when those algorithms started changing, I mean, I just don't, have the time to invest. I have a social media intern. She's wonderful. But like, I don't have the time to invest in the type of content that that algorithm favors. And so it's a much harder, it's still effective, but it's a much harder, it's not as effective as it once was. Newsletter list is huge for us. We don't have anything crazy in terms of subscribers. Like we're probably around 3,000, but I actively call it every six months or so. If you've got someone on your newsletter list and they never open your email, it's actually costing you money. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so I don't, if you don't want to open my emails, that's okay. But like take them off. You're paying for them. And the higher your open rate goes, the better you look to Google. And so keeping, I'd rather have a higher open rate and a lower subscribers. Number of subscribers is just the vanity, right? It's like saying I have a hundred thousand followers, but nobody ever like looks at my posts on Instagram. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's a vanity metric. And so we have a 55, 65% open rate on every email, which is huge in any industry, in any standard. And yeah, I just do a lot of storytelling. I don't know. There's something about the storytelling that like that I do in the way that I do it that connects with people. I don't think there's any like secret sauce to it. I'm just kind of me. I am sharing kind of like what's happening here, but I'm also pretty vulnerable in a lot of different ways. People really, really connect with that. And I think that people are just at some point like me. I mean, <laughs> they just really connect and like want to see good things for us as a result. And Thankfully that when they come out and we give them a good show, right? We do good stuff here. And so the newsletter is huge for us. I don't do a lot of segmentation. I wish I did a better job of that. I don't do a lot of that. I'm trying to do get a little bit better with like the newsletter and getting more into like what kind of things can you do with it, like segmentation and lead gen and stuff like that. But that's a big one for us. I have not done 
any, a lot of real advertising outside of that. We are exploring the idea of working with someone on Google AdWords to just hopefully get more B2B business and getting more like corporate tours and like those large groups that can fill up our Monday through Friday because our Saturdays are very full. And so looking for ways to bring out groups that would be looking more midweek, which are corporate groups and companies and stuff like that. So we're going to be doing some Google ad stuff later this year with a consultant that I found. So hopefully that goes that goes well because we would love to beef up that part of our business. And you use the word we because there's a team of you now, right? Like you're still very much the face of this company you started, but you have an all-woman team. Is that correct? We do. Yeah, we actually have. We had a gentleman that he just comes out as contractor like from time to time and like helps us in the BR, the during harvesting because it's really hard work and we're kind of all like pushed to our limits. And he, he was in last week and I called him by the last male employee we had like two years ago. And I was like, oh no, I'm sorry. We don't have a lot of men around here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a lot of dudes other than my husband and my son. But yes, I have a team. So I've got myself. My first employee that I hired was an assistant, which a lot of people are surprised about, but man, I think there's no other way to do it. Get some of that admin off your plate so you can keep doing the things that you know make us money. So I have an assistant. She's wonderful. I have a full-time beekeeper and I have a full-time operations person. And then we have several, I have an events person and then we have several seasonal employees that do things like they have other full-time jobs and they come out on the weekends and do hive tours and honey harvest parties and honey sensory and things like that. So we lean into the seasonal work where we can. Yeah. Sounds like a fun group. It's a fun group. We have a good time. So as you know, most of our audience is other direct market farmers or people who want to be doing that. And so I am curious if there's any one decision you've made that you think was one of the best ones for Two Hives. And I'm curious about how it made a difference for the business or for you or for the bees. Yeah. So I think the one thing that I always share with people, particularly people that are bootstrapping, like starting a business on their own money, which most of us in farming are. We're putting up our own money to make it work. And what I've did with Two Hives and I'm continuing to do with the second business that I'm launching is really focusing on like this idea of the MVP, the minimal viable product. So like, for example, when I wanted to start doing Hive tours, I didn't yet have a proven concept. And so I didn't spend any money on bee suit until I booked a first tour. And then I frantically drove two hours north and bought a bunch of bee suits, just enough to, to fit that tour, right? So this notion that like, as much as you can test out a new idea, a new product, whether it's like a service or whatever, test it out as much as you can and only do the bare minimum to make sure it's proven before you invest a lot of money. Like I was driving today for the second business to go like present the product to a, a buyer. It was my first buyer. And I kept thinking, gosh, I wish I had branded gear, like a t-shirt or something. And I was like, no, MVP, tear MVP. <laughs> like, Don't spend money on a bunch of t-shirts and swag until you've actually sold some product. And so I'm a big believer in that uh, as someone that like bootstrapped. I think that that was really important for me as a way to like, and I, the company turned the profit really fast by doing it that way. Some could call it cheap, but I just think it's being smart with how you're spending your money. Yeah. So tell me what MVP, I don't know that. MVP, 
yeah, minimal viable product. Okay. So it's this idea of like the least amount that I can do to have something to test the market with first. Yeah, that sounds good to me. So it's usually used in like tech or something, but the idea can also be done in service businesses or in other other ways too, right? Just think about like what you're going to be investing in and make sure that whatever you're going to do is working. All that matters is sales, right? If you can't sell whatever it is that you're hoping to sell, you're going to be dead in the water. So do what you have to do the bare minimum to be able to sell what you're hoping to sell and save all the like bells and whistles for later. Yeah. Right. And then you can start investing in the scaling up and the, the brand, like the, the merch or, or maybe like the better facilities or whatever it takes. Yeah, exactly. I just think that's important if you're like, but I mean, you know, these people that get, you know, millions of dollars of investment for a company, I wouldn't even know what to do. I would be like, I don't even know what to do. I'd still probably only spend like a thousand dollars on launching the company. I wouldn't even know what to do if you gave me that much money. Cause I'm so conditioned to like think in a scarcity mindset of like, Oh, let's make sure, you know, only get this far and then spend a little more and then spend a little more. Yeah. I 100% agree. We grew for five years licensed cannabis here in Oregon, which was a great side enterprise for our farm. And it worked really well for us because we already had a lot of infrastructure and equipment that we could just, that worked for vegetables that also worked for cannabis. So for us, the only thing we did was buy the security equipment that was mandated by the state. We didn't do any other purchases aside from like seeds and plants. Meanwhile, wow, there were other farms out there that got outside investors, thought they were going to get so rich, built massive greenhouses, systems, HVACs, all this infrastructure, and then couldn't sell their product because the market got flooded. And you're like, ooh, people lost their shirts. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. And I'm sure that you could look at any kind of booming industry and see that there have been people who have done that. It's like a classic gold rush model where people just throw money at it. Yeah. So I think that's great advice. You know, do what you can with what you have at each step of the way. Make sure you got something to sell and people to sell it to as well, because it's both pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And you are also finishing up work on a book right now about BP keeping is this can you tell us more about the status of that and who what's the audience and the purpose of the book yeah i actually just got a note from my publisher today that we just finally got final approval on the manuscript whoa what a journey Woo, congratulations you know i do i do <laughs> know. there's still work to be done but good i would never do it again i like you know, you hear people say like, oh, book, writing a book is so hard. Like, don't ever do it. And then like, we don't listen. And it is just such incredible work. Um, yeah, it is a beekeeping book. So I started this in 2021, in January, 2021. The book that I used for my apprenticeship class had got out of print and I didn't like any of the other options out there. And so I thought, well, I'll just write my own. I wrote half of this book in the six weeks prior to February, 2021, when I found out I was pregnant. And I found out I was pregnant Everything came to a grinding halt because I was like, whoa, I'm pregnant. What am I going to do now? And then that summer, very serendipitously, someone was at an event and that knows of me and mentioned my name to a publisher at UT 
an editor at UT Press, and which is University of Texas Press. And they called me and they wanted me to write a book. But of course, the book they wanted me to write was, you know, CIA turned beekeeper situation. And I was like, well, I'm not going to write that book. But I've got another book for you. And so I pitched them on this idea of a beekeeping book. And they bought it. So I, you know, I was, that was the summer of 2020 when I was pregnant. And so I was pregnant, had a baby, didn't get much done. And then finished the book last year, finished it in October of 2022, turned in my manuscript and have been going through peer review ever since. (laughs) It's so painful. It's so painful and slow. So anyway, we are just about done now. And then it'll only be another year before any of the book sees the light of day. So, you know, just a quick, like four years in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I've already had to update the book. Uh, oh gosh, it's not even published. The peer review process, because it's a university press, this is to check on the science and theory and the practical advice. So are there other beekeepers who exactly. are reading it too? Okay. It's your voice, but it's been confirmed by others. And did you have feedback from them that you then had to respond to? Or was it mostly straightforward? It's a little bit of a tricky. I'm not totally sure if all of their publications get... I'm not sure of the process, but it's been interesting because it is a how-to, but there's a lot of different ways to do things in the beekeeping world. I mean, I think my way is the best, but that's just me. Like anything with farming. Exactly. So anyway, it's been really interesting. But yeah, there was two peer reviewers. Some of the feedback was really, really useful. Some of the feedback I think is less useful because there's a very different perspective. And I won't go into too many details, but the perspective of one of the peer reviewers is in a very, very different role than I am in terms of our viewpoints on beekeeping. You know, like if you took like a big, large scale migratory commercial beekeeper and asked them how they would instruct someone how to keep bees. And then you asked a proficient hobbies beekeeper, it would be very different. And so I think what's tricky when you get into like these peer review situations is that trying to consider you've got a publisher that doesn't know anything about keep beekeeping. They don't know anything about beekeeping. You know what I mean? And so they've got me with this perspective and then they've got someone else in a position of certain authority, like with the position. And so it's a little tricky, but thankfully like we've worked through it. I was able a lot of times to meet the intention of the comment without totally embracing the recommendation. Do you know what I mean? So I was able to like check the box and the publisher has been like super supportive and really great, but it's just like a long process. And like, I'm not even going to count the number of hours because I would probably just collapse into a heap thinking about how much work I've put into this book. That's probably not going to make me any money ever. But you know, you put so much into it and then to have someone come along and like, that may be constructive or may not be as constructive with their feedback can be a little bit tough, but it's been a good exercise in being humble and like holding your tongue. (laughs) Yeah. Which I think that I could have used, I needed that perspective. So it came at a good time in my life. Okay. And then this is a book you will use. But someday it'll come out, 2024. Okay. And then you'll be able to use it in your beekeeping education program and presumably you'll sell it in your store. Yes. But then will it also be available like on all the biggies, like bookshop and Amazon and such? Okay. Yeah. The benefit of using a a publisher instead of like self-publishing is that I'll have all of those marketing resources available and it'll be, you know, available all over. And was it written in a way that the information would apply to other regions of North America too? Yes. Yeah. It was really important to me. You know, you'll hear so many people that, say all beekeeping is local and it it is but really 
it's all the same. It's just related to like resource availability and just resource availability is different in Oregon than it is in Texas. And so I actually wrote a whole chapter called beekeeping through the seasons. And instead of talking about summer, spring, fall, and winter, because those things mean nothing, I renamed the seasons like the growing season. Oh, yeah. So in the growing season is the time of year when your first plants are starting to germinate and produce nectar and pollen. And that's your growing season. And this is what's going to happen in your hive as a result. Or like your dearth season here in Texas, we get a really harsh summer dearth. You guys don't get that summer dearth as harshly, but your winter dearth looks a lot different. And so talking about it in terms of like resource availability means that you can talk about how to keep bees anywhere in the world, as long as you understand how that availability or lack thereof affects the colony. And so it's really important to me to make it not just for Texas beekeepers. That makes a lot of sense to me, just as a farmer in general, like we may have different seasons, but there are cycles that happen many places. So that's cool. I can't wait to see it. I will have to wait. another year, but (laughs) I am excited for when it comes out. (laughs) The crazy thing is that like, if you print a book in color, it automatically takes an extra three months because you have to send it overseas. Like there's no printer publishing or whatever in this country. It has to go overseas, which is just mind boggling to me. Yes, it's true. It's a slow process these days. Okay. But I know where all of our listeners are going to want to A, someday read your book, B, order your honey, maybe fly to Texas and attend one of your events. So how can people find you? Yeah. So twohiveshoney.com, spell out the two. My recommendation is if you ever start a business, do not include a number in the business because forever until the day that you die, you'll have to specify how that number should be presented. We are on Instagram at two hives. Again, spell out the two. Those are the two best places to find us. We do a lot of sharing on Instagram and then on our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter if that's of interest. And then when this book comes out, you better believe it's going to be everywhere on all those channels Okay, for a long time. Great. So if they subscribe <laughs> to your newsletter or follow you on Instagram, they'll get noticed when the book comes out. And I'll make sure all that is in the show notes too. So people will just have some links. Thank you. Anything else you want to share with our audience today, Tara? I've really appreciated chatting. So, No, I have too. I really appreciate the, like, I've done a lot of interviews and a lot of podcasts and I appreciate the approaching it from a examining the business, how to, and the marketing from a farmer's perspective, because I think that, you know, I'm in a lot of entrepreneur groups and I've done a lot of accelerator programs and it's a point of view that's often missed. One of the accelerator groups messaged me last week and she was like, we're trying to make subcategories on Slack and we don't know where you fit. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> where do you go? And I was like, just put me in the food and drink. That's that's where you put me. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I appreciate that perspective. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, oh gosh, I'm so excited for people to get to listen to all this. I think there's so much that's applicable to many small farms trying to figure out like, yes, we can grow broccoli and sell it and make a profit but how much broccoli do you have to sell to make a living? So I think a lot of farms are layering multiple enterprises, different marketing strategies, and it seems like you've done that really well. And I love hearing about your intentionality around that business side too. Like the fact that you are involved in these non-farming business communities seems like a really good way to keep growing and is inspiring. So awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tara. And I wish you all the best this summer. 
And maybe we'll talk again when your book comes out. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. If you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital sample from our website, growingformarket.com. And the next time you're in the market for farm tools, don't forget to visit our podcast collaborator, Never Sink Farm, for the best in farm tools designed and made by farmers at neversinktools.com. Mm-hmm.